Hello, everybody. This is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them. I am Taylor Carmen, a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I work on European philosophy, mostly of the 20th century. Hi, I'm Eric Kaplan. Uh, I'm a writer uh, in Hollywood. You might know my work from such shows as Futurama and Flight of the Concords and The Big Bang Theory. And uh, I'm also a philosopher. And uh, here we are doing this podcast. All right. So um, I have a terrifying question for you. What is it? What is it? It is, uh, is justice possible? Is justice possible? Yeah. Um, well, is this the same question? Is, is it possible to take a situation that's less just and make it more just? I think it's more like, is justice doomed to be a kind of merely aspirational sort of goal that we never really reach? Hmm. Are we always falling short? Oh, is that similar to the question, is health possible? Ah, it may be. It may be, though that's pointing to an answer, which is uh, like, how how good is good enough? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I guess my here's my take on yeah. justice. Um, and, and I've read Rawls's theory of justice, but it, it was never my sort of... Um, my focus of my studies like political philosophy but i think there's definitely cases which cry out for correction yeah in this life like you think about aaron brockovich it's like there's a bunch of people making a lot of money because they're dumping poison in this community and the people there are getting cancer and i feel like that's a situation uh -huh. that you're like that ain't right uh-huh and my my feeling would be that we're always going to want to formulate a, a concept of justice, which means what's or injustice, rather. Yeah, injustice yeah. is what applies to situations that cry out for some sort of correction. Right. Um, and that's what I think justice is. is it's the um, concept that we formulate to deal with injustice. And I think there are a special kind of situation because there can be situations where people are are already making a lot of money, but they're still unjust. So like, yeah. So like, it's sort of intrinsically a corrective to, right. hey, we're all having a good time, we're all making money, our state is powerful, but there are people who are getting screwed over, and that's wrong. That's my yeah. feeling of what the concept of injustice is meant to capture. Right. Well, so there's no doubt that injustice is possible, I think. Uh, and then the question is, how do you get away from injustice? Maybe there's more than one way to move away from injustice. And there's no one thing called justice, which is the direction you're going in necessarily. So how do you remedy injustices? Do you, do you start going in the direction of uh, equality or... Uh, liberty or freedom or comfort or happiness. In other words, there there could be a whole bunch of competing values in calling for justice. But it well, may I don't be... think comfort is what we're talking about. <laughs> okay, when people so are, I'll scratch that. <laughs> well, it's a good. Um, okay, it's a good. It's a different good. There's so many goods um, you might say that are competing. Uh, in other words, what the reason I mentioned that is just because I was thinking, well, if right, if these injustices involve people suffering, maybe alleviating suffering is the, the good you're right, aiming at. Right. But the worry is that it's not that there's no improving the bad situation. It's that maybe there's there's going to be more than one way to improve it, and people might disagree uh -huh. deeply about how to improve this situation. Like, what direction should we go in? Um, and maybe justice... You know, given it falls under this one word, but maybe that's misleading because that makes you think there's one thing, uh -huh. uh, which is a, a, not only that, but that you could arrive at it and then be there 
so that you're not falling short at all, but you've actually achieved it completely. Well, let, let me give you yeah. an example just to kind of concentrate sure. my mind with all these worries. Yeah. Like you're in the department lounge and you say, I think it'd be pretty cool to write a paper about um, Heidegger and submarine warfare. <laughs> and your friend is listening and then he publishes a paper yeah. called Heidegger and Submarine <laughs> Warfare. He doesn't credit you. Bastard. And he becomes a famous philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> and you, in frustration, leave the department and you take to drink. And you're like working in CVS and you see him being interviewed on Joe Rogan talking about Heidegger. Oh, it's like, like Breaking Bad. Yeah. Right. And yeah. you're just like, well, that's. That's so unjust. Um, right. So what are your intuitions about like why it's we don't have an easy way of resolving that situation? OK, well, yeah. So what do we do? I could kill the guy. <laughs> I could uh, I could undertake some subterfuge that that undermines his career. Well, you don't have to do it yourself. Let's just say this comes to the yeah, I mean, comes to the attention of a judge. All right. Like Maybe the, I could the head, sue the APA judge. Or, or, or a regular judge yeah. in a court. Now, couldn't they be like, well, you stole Taylor's idea and you have to give him half the money or 68% of the money, whatever. Mm. Yeah. And you need to share credit. Right. And, like, wouldn't, That'd be nice. wouldn't that be okay? What are we missing? I might still be filled with anger. I might still be seething with resentment that here I am working at CVS. It's sort of it, it, like the compensation may be small comfort, but not enough to really appease my sense of injustice, like I feel like I've been wronged beyond what the courts or the legal system is going to give me satisfaction for. Huh. Now, I don't know. See, I mean, we did an episode recently on revenge, and people who are seeking revenge at least are very often inclined to say they want justice. And it may be a justice that exceeds what the law will recognize as justice. Um, and I'm not saying revenge is justice, but they blur together in the minds of those who feel terribly wronged and who want satisfaction of some kind. Now, the other thing I could do is to write an even better paper about Friedrich Nietzsche and cannibalism <laughs> or, or whatever. And this... Yeah, the cruel feast of the genealogy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> this uh, blows the roof off the academic world. And now I've got a chair in cannibal studies at yeah. uh, the... Rutgers, probably. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and now my revenge is that I have, you know, the best revenge is living well. And now I can lord it over this this scoundrel. Well, a lot of things could happen that could be good for you. Yeah. Like you could decide to just become a surfer and have a lovely life. Maybe. But sure. that, doesn't, that doesn't seem to be connected to justice. Right. 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 So what what makes certain of, I mean. I was thinking my scenario but, is I've gotten even with him somehow or I've, I've I see. like, yeah. And, and then there's certain ways of getting even that when we talked about last week about revenge are unjust. Like if you're like, my children hate me. This is, I think, what the Count of Monte Cristo is about. Mm. My children hate me mm. because I became a loser. So therefore, I'm going to create a, a campaign to make my rival's children hate him. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. And yeah. Then you're sort of like, well, hang yeah. on a second, Taylor. Right. That might be emotionally satisfying, but it doesn't seem to be <laughs> yeah. just. No, no. In fact, I don't mean to be suggesting that all these things really are justice. What I mean to be saying okay. is that I could be so filled with anger and resentment that this muddies the waters about what justice really requires. But it does right. raise the question, the serious question, well, what does justice really require? Okay, so what does justice require? Well, I don't, I mean, does anybody know? 
I mean, <laughs> yeah, we've got ideas about like how to there's restitution. You see, I feel like there's certain moves in the story that I told. There's certain moves. Yeah. That clearly are a direction towards justice. Yeah. Giving you credit. Yeah. That's a direction towards justice. Yeah. Sharing the gains that were stolen from you. That seems like a okay. direction to move towards justice. Okay, good. So here's a distinction. So those are kinds of restitution. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, what about retribution? Should this person be punished? Should this person be fined or imprisoned or fired or, you know... Or publicly shamed. You're exactly right, which nowadays. is maybe what I'm like, hankering like for. Like when, yeah. when people act in a disgusting and exploitative way in sexual context, yeah. um, usually the, the court of public opinion and people feel very um, uncomfortable yeah. about that because they're like, oh, there's no, there's no rights for the accused. There's no sense that... Um, uh, there's no limitation to the punishment. It just goes on forever. Right. And I think those are good worries. Yeah. Although I also think that public opinion and shaming are and always will be one of our tools of retribution. Like, I can't imagine yeah. a society where that didn't exist. No, that's right. I'm not a big fan of retribution or um, punishment. But I do think it's kind of inescapable or ineliminable. There will always be a sense that it's not enough that I got compensated for the wrong. I want that person to get the message that you can't do this. And they need, right. they need to hurt a little so they get the message. Exactly. Yeah. Like if there's a big conference where everybody is talking, is kissing their ass, and yeah. everybody's talking about how great they are, what a great person that person. What a fantastic right. philosopher. I, I, I'm, and yeah. they're giving those testimonials, which always kind of makes me gag. But <laughs> when I first met him, I want someone to rain on their parade and exactly. say, excuse me. He's a plagiarist. This is actually Professor Carmen's idea. This person is a plagiarist. Yeah. Now, I'm, I don't want their hand chopped off. Right. But I would like them to not be like sort of basking in smug self-satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, right. So I think that, I mean, this is just the tip of an iceberg, but I think the iceberg yeah. is there will be disagreements about what justice is. Yeah. Like, is it just getting even? No, I hope not. It's not just appeasing the victims. You can't, that's not justice because, I mean, when, how will they ever be appeased? Because people tend to want excessive. And some victims might be easier to appease yeah. because they've been so beaten down by life that they've learned not to ask too much. Yeah. And you're like, Professor Carmen, what would you like to feel better? Right. Well, I don't know. Just give me a bagel with some butter and I'll be fine. And it's like, no, we shouldn't ask <laughs> Professor Carmen. He's just too depressed to, yeah, exactly. to ask for his due. Yeah. And I can think of cases like that. There was a victim of the, after the L.A. riots, you know, in the whenever that was, 92 or whatever, that mm -hmm. some truck driver was dragged out of his truck and beaten, and it caused real damage, I mean, brain damage. It was terrible. And during some kind of trial, he was saying, it's all right, it's okay, I'm fine. Okay, <laughs> It's like, you know, he really wanted to defuse all the, right. the, the violence that was surrounding this thing. And I was thinking, man, that person who did that needs to be you know, thrown in jail <laughs> and prison. And right. so, because that's, uh, yeah, so, right. So the, the victim's feelings will be an unreliable guide to justice. Sure. Even when people agree about what justice is, they will disagree about what counts as satisfying that measure, how much retribution, like what length of a prison sentence. I'm very bothered by the length of prison sentences for things. I know very little about this, really, but intuitively, when I see somebody being sentenced to 50 years in prison for some bad crime. But I sometimes think, really? Anyway, so I don't know how you decide those things. How do you calculate them? Well, let's say somebody knocked over a convenience store and pistol whipped somebody 
who ended up um, blind. Terrible, terrible. Yeah, it's a terrible thing to do. And then like you, and they probably they were twenty when they did it. Yeah, yeah. And then there's some seventy year old dude in prison. And you're like, what's Johnny in prison for? Yeah. Well. In 1978, he pistol whipped someone in a robbery, and they ended up blind. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's something weird about that. Yeah, very, sort of very. Like, and violent crimes that people commit the when they're teen, yeah, when they're teenagers and tried as adults when they're 17 or 18, and it was a burglary that went wrong. Things got out of hand. There was a fight. Somebody dies. Terrible. But I can't remember if I've ever said this. Like I don't have many contrarian views. Yeah. Because I think uh, it's just easier to get along with people. Although that's kind of a joke because I think that's a contrarian view itself um, because people like to brag about how contrarian their views are. But I do have a contrarian uh -huh. view with, about um, the relative severity of punishment for white collar crime like, uh, uh, you know, Bernie Madoff uh, ripping people's pension funds off on some nonsense uh -huh. and the blue collar crime of pistol whipping someone in a robbery that went wrong. Uh -huh. And I think <laughs> the punishments for blue collar crime should be relatively light yeah. because th and those people just they're in a state in their lives where they're not thinking too far ahead yeah. so they 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 will not respond to incentives and they should be sort of you know have some version of therapy but i think the um yeah. the blue collar and white collar white, white collar, collar crime yeah. on the life savings of 10,000 people should be electrocuted on a pay-per-view <laughs> on Fox because I think when people are in business school and they're trying to decide, yeah. will I go into uh, legitimate stock trading or uh, a Ponzi scheme? Yeah, that will change their decision. Yeah, like, hey, did are you going to watch the the stock traders being electrocuted yeah. on Fox? We're going to have a party, and you might come back from that party and be like, huh? Yeah, I think I'm going <laughs> to obey the law. <laughs> I find that my gut feelings about these things are very variable and probably unreliable because sometimes I hear about some crime. It's kind of I'm I'm kind of making a joke because I would No, no, I, I know you are, but I mean I would find it brutalizing to exist in such a system. Yeah, of course. What's interesting is how wildly different your reactions can be depending on how much you know about the story. Like I heard the story about mm -hmm. Elizabeth Holmes, is that her name? Who did the um Oh, Theranos. Yeah. She's she the like she's talking about a wolf. We talked about her once in yeah. another episode. Yeah, yeah, she's a hilarious villain. <laughs> I first heard the exactly the outlines of the story and I thought, oh, what an idiot she was and what a stupid thing and people lost money and terrible and all right. And I thought, do I want this whole person's life to be ruined by this? No. And and but then the more I learned about it <laughs> and the more I learned her story, the angrier I got and the more contempt I had for her and the more I started really feeling merciless. But there's other crimes like, you know, people who rip people off with phone scams, you know, where they're stealing money from elderly people. It's so so despicable that I can easily get to thinking, yeah, these people should be flogged in public. And anyway, so yeah, how do you measure what is appropriate retribution, restitution? It can't just be blind revenge because it has to be measured. That's the first thing, right? And it also has to be something where people know the rules before yeah. they play the game, right? Right. It has to. It can't just be. Um, we're all just going to get together and see how it strikes us. Because right. that seems like a terrifying society to live in. But here's a, here's a real deep problem, I think, about the yeah. possibility of justice, is if the measure system or the proportionality is too precise, it's going to be rigid, and I'm tempted to say merciless. So if you've got, uh -huh. you know, you've got sentencing guidelines, and within the sentencing guidelines, a judge is supposed to exercise some further bit of, like, 
discretion or judgment based on intangible things like is this person um what's the word for it's not quite so religious sounding as repentant um contrite contrite yeah that's right or not in other words you're judging the the person's demeanor their attitude and there has to be flexibility so here's the point yeah justice requires consistency of measured punishment or restitution but it can't be too rigid because if it's too rigid it's going to be like a machine and inflexible so that look you did this crime that's a 25 year sentence i'm sorry doesn't matter what else is going on with the person you are or how you've changed or how young you were or whatever you can try and make the guide the guidelines or the formula even more and more precise but i think the again no matter how precise it is if it's rigid it won't be merciful and i think mercy is a part of justice but it looks like it's intention with the predictability and the rationality and the quantified measured character of justice justice has to be measured but it has to be flexible somehow and and be attuned to somebody's intuitions about what's really right in this case i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna gonna raise a couple issues about that let's take our break let's do it yeah So we're back from our break, um, and Taylor is raising the issue of mercy. Um, and one of the things that troubles me with mercy is I think people tend to extend mercy more to likable people, and that strikes me as unfair. Yeah, I mean, mercy is is a sentiment or an impulse that has to be responsive to something about the person that makes them worthy of compassion or leniency. I mean, what if they're totally unrepentant, nasty, violent, aggressive people who don't have any regret about the terrible thing they've done, and as opposed to the person who's torn up about this thing, they did it, they feel terrible about it, they're obviously suffering from their own sense of guilt, and it's, you know, I don't know if it's such a bad thing. Well, there's the domestic abusers, like, oh, I'm so sorry, I love you so much, I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. that's not, like, like simply torrents of emotion right are relatively cheap right you have to be able to read people and that could be an act but it also could just be very perfectly sincere but you know this isn't going to like feed into their future behavior sometimes i think if we know for a fact the person will never repeat the crime we shouldn't punish them but then sometimes i think that's totally yeah. wrong well i <laughs> because yeah. they they could have done the crime like that that's a case where my intuitions kind of get jumbled up because like yeah like let's say we're pretty confident oj simpson will never decapitate his wife again but it's, <laughs> it's still, not that wife <laughs> still, yeah well sure but not let's even say we believe no yeah. wife that he's learned his lesson like that's still no, not I, enough. I, I would never say that right. we shouldn't punish just because we know the person won't do the thing again when i said i'm not a fan of punishment i didn't mean i think there shouldn't be any of it i just mean i i would like us to do as little of it as we feel like we have to do. So what are we looking for in repentance? So I I guess I was just knocking down a a position which maybe didn't need to be knocked down, which was the reason why we like repentance and dislike lack of repentance is that the unrepentant person seems to be a dangerous character who will continue to offend, while the repentant person Mm. seems to have accepted 
the judgment that what they did was wrong and they won't do well, it that again. could be part of it um, but i do think some of it is a backwards but maybe it's not the whole story right, some of it is a backwards looking thing too like i think in retrospect you see this as a worse thing given that having done it the person doesn't regret it i think that makes it even look more terrible in retrospect don't you because you could imagine i mean a yes. kind of thought experiment yes. exactly the same crime gets committed by two people or by the same person in different worlds and then in one world, the person immediately feels terrible about it and really regrets it and feels guilty and so on. And and then you think, well, this tells me about what kind of person it was who did this thing. Whereas in the other case, the person does it and doesn't feel a thing about it and doesn't regret it. And then you think, well, that in retrospect shows me what kind of person it was who did that and makes it worse. You know, an example I was going to point to is the end of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Uh-huh, yes. They give him a fairly light sentence. You know, he killed this woman and her sister, I think. Two women, yeah, right? Yeah. With an axe. And it was horrible. And finally, it ends up that they have great wisdom. The, the judge or the court, they sentence him to, was it seven years in... Siberia, yeah. Yeah, Siberia. So, yeah, you know, it's not a life sentence. It's not a death sentence. They could have, apparently, I guess, I've read that according to the legal system at the time, they could have given him a lot more. But I think that was the wise decision because they could see what we're supposed to see throughout the novel, which is that Raskolnikov is actually a very sensitive and very thoughtful, maybe too thoughtful, reflective person. He's not a monster. And it was out of a terrible, misguided idea that was leading him to this terrible act. And he it almost destroyed him because he had a conscience and he felt awful about it. There's other characters in the book who really are kind of sociopathic creeps, but Raskolnikov isn't one of them. So I think the court was right, right. to exercise this kind of discretion or mercy. And I think that's part of the point of the book. So... Um, yeah, so here's the problem about, like, justice, you may never be able to hit it, and maybe this is fine, but, I mean, it may be that it's not the kind of target that you can hit perfectly because it's making two different demands on us. It's It has to be measured, proportionate, handed out evenly as much as possible so that, again, it's not too much the case that some people are getting away with murder and some aren't and so on. But then there also has to be this squishiness or indeterminacy in which you have to make some kind of qualitative judgment about the person, their future behavior, but also, you know, um, their character, their feelings, their whatever and 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 it may well be that there's just no in many cases no one verdict or decision which is going to please everybody's sense of justice and this is very common people say this wasn't justice right but i wonder if it's not the case that like um like to take a really prosaic example an uh, interior decorator yeah. <laughs> and you're yeah, sort yeah. of like is there a perfect interior decoration yeah and you'd be like well if you want it to be spare it's not going to be full of um, homey doodads. Right. <laughs> and if you want it to be full of homey doodads, it's not going to be spare. Right. But but it doesn't seem like that should be a, a source of a lot of angst about interior decoration. No, because right? who cares? Right. Well, because who cares? You you decorate your house the way you want, and I'll decorate mine the way I want, and uh, to each his own. But we can't so say to each his own. So you think it's a little bit like decorating the public square? <laughs> More like that, yeah. If we're may, decorating I, the public square, somebody could be like... yeah. I don't think there should be gigantic ads. I want it to look like it did 200 years ago. And someone else is like, I don't think it should look like it did 200 years ago. I think it should look fun and yeah. contemporary. And maybe the person whose design wins the contest gets a million dollars. And the person who loses the contest for the design of the public square is driven out of town. And right. I mean, people's lives might depend on this. Oh, for sure. So, But I kind of agree with you, actually, which is uh, to say that I 
do think that justice is kind of plural or multiple or you can't nail it down because there will be competing considerations, judgments, competing values even. Um, for, but is that, you know. is that more tragic? I, I'm going to say a position that I don't quite agree yeah. with, but, but um, there's, there's, there's two situations that can result from pluralism about values. Yeah. One of them I'm going to call the, um, the breakfast buffet. <laughs> okay, right. And the yeah. breakfast buffet is sort of like, if you have a bunch of oatmeal, you can't have as many pancakes. Right. And if you have a lot of pancakes, you can't have as much oatmeal. Nice, yeah. And it's kind of like, it's not terribly angst. Mm. It's not an angsty thing. Mm. But it, then there's the sort of tragic choice yeah. where it's sort of like, if I want to devote my life to fighting the resistance, I can't, you know, fighting the Nazis, I can't care for my family. And if I want to care for my family, uh, the Nazis are going to have one less person fighting them. Right. Um, Good. And that seems like an angsty. Thing. Good point. Um, yeah. And I feel like you're pushing that there's a more angsty pluralism of values at play in justice than the breakfast buffet. Good, situation. good. There are two different points here. You're right. And actually, I don't think that mercy and justice are in deep conflict with each other. I think that just... You think that oatmeal and pancakes? I think, well, actually more than that, I think justice requires mercy. So I, in other words, I think... So that could be like strength and flexibility. Yeah. Like you're yeah. going to a gym... And they're like, hey, I, all I want to do is be strong. Just give me a lot of weights to lift. And they're like, well, actually, right. if you all you do is try and be strong, you won't even be strong. Right. Yeah. So you better be flexible, yes. too. That's a good that's a very good analogy, because then the person who's really the strict hanging judge who wants to be really firm and not show any favoritism or partiality. And if you do that you're going to fail to be just because you're going to be heartless and merciless. So, yeah, so that's right. more like the strength and flexibility. Justice requires mercy, but, you know, only so much because too much mercy is going to be soft-minded squeamishness about upholding the law. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there are other kinds of values that are more, as Isaiah Berlin said, you know, at war with each other. His example... At war with each other, yeah, right. Like his example was a liberty and equality. I think maybe there's more, I don't know if it's a, quite a tragic conflict, maybe it's potentially tragic, between forward-looking kinds of considerations of justice, and in which case we want to educate people, reform them, improve them, help them get their lives back on track, and and make the world livable, you know, moving forward, as we say now. Uh, and on the other hand, the backward-looking restitution, retribution kinds of calls for punishment. So I could write... I could write a sad story about Taylor in CVS. Yeah. Which is like, you're in CVS and you suddenly come across a smoking gun proof that this popular professor has um, uh, has stolen your idea. Uh -huh. And you go over to Harvard University and you're in his class and you realize many, many students have learned a lot from him. Mm. And the world is a better place ah. because of all the ways that he has made your idea <laughs> popular and ah. understandable. Yeah. And you ultimately decide to go home to CVS and, and throw away the piece of paper because you're just like, wow. what, what did I really want? I wanted people to understand philosophy better. <laughs> and they yeah. did. Yeah. Just You didn't get any credit, which is unjust. But looking forward... It makes the world a better place. Like, that could be a tragic little story. I would have to be a saint, yeah, to do that, right? I would have to be a real Well, hero. we would have to write the story carefully enough that yeah, that's yeah. plausible. But I yeah, think yeah, it, could yeah, be, no, it, yeah. would be a, it would be a sad and heroic moment for you where you're just like, 
I, I feel like I'm I'm unconsciously ripping off something like the character uh, who ripped you off. But but I feel like I've seen this and I liked it a lot. It reminds me of something. You know, there was an Israeli movie 10 years oh, ago you so know called it The is. Footnote. It's Dead End Kids. Oh, The Footnote is fantastic. I was thinking of Dead End Kids. No, I don't know the Dead End Kids. Tell me about it. Oh, well, well Dead End Kids were um, Jimmy Cagney is a tough mobster and he he re- he is a hero to all these like street um, kids on the Lower East Side. And he decides upon the advice of a priest that when he goes off to the electric chair, he's going to cry and weep and behave shamefully, even though he's actually a brave man, in order to not send the message to these kids that he should be a hero. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. Well, maybe I'm thinking of something else. So anyway, what was the story of Footnote? It's a father and son who are scholars, and the son is supposed to be nominated for some academic prize and they get the names wrong and they accidentally call the father who's sort of you know oh, moderately successful. sort of a mediocrity yeah, yeah but but he is now delighted he's been nominated or you know being granted this prestigious lit you know academic uh, award and it, and he's you know old man and this has made him so happy and the son now feels terrible about it the son wanted this prize because he's really ambitious he's more accomplished than his father and it's not quite the same kind of story you're imagining but there is some kind of reconciliation between them i can't how does it end do they end up giving the giving the award to the father after all so it does it does i don't remember but it does throw two competing values which is like yeah on one level, yeah. you feel like prizes could, should go to the people who are better yeah. and not to the people who are it worse. It was a mistake. But on the other yeah. hand, yeah. you feel like, ah, this poor guy, <laughs> just give him a prize. Yeah. He always <laughs> wanted more recognition. He never had the recognition yeah. he wanted. And now he's so he's happier than he's been in years. And, it, and the father and the son have been competitive. So is the last thing that happens to him going to be that he's humiliated by taking this prize back and that his son actually won the prize and... I can't actually. It's just as well I can't remember how it ends, so that people who watch it will be surprised by it. But yeah, yeah it's this. So there's a conflict of values. I don't know how many of these are really tragic. Like Isaiah Berlin said, some values are at war with each other, which means not just a matter of circumstance that you can't satisfy both, but they're in deep conflict. Did he think that was a good thing? Did he think it was like steel sharpening steel, or war being the father no, of all things? No, no, I don't think he thought it was good. I think he thought it was inevitable, it was just but but I think he inevitable thought inevitable and tragic. It's just the way it is, and it means you have to right. be realistic about like compromise and making compromises on one value to satisfy the other. And there's just no perfect compromise. And what he thought was very dangerous was a kind of enlightenment idea that, in principle, you ought to be able to satisfy all the important values. So does the Berlinianism lead a kind of um squishy centrist complacency um maybe but it also avoids fanaticism right yeah i feel very ambivalent about those things because i feel like i definitely think berlin is true and it definitely appeals to me a lot and you're just sort of like hey that's unfair yeah yeah it is kind of unfair but it can't be too fair because then people will be unfree and that's life man yeah but then i also feel like it tends to kind of blunt the edge of any kind of um, criticism of the existing order because you can always be like, what do you expect? Yeah, I'm a great... Plural values, man. I'm a great admirer of Isaiah Berlin. He's not always so well thought of among philosophers, but he was a friend and teacher of a teacher of mine at Stanford, Stuart Hampshire. Stuart and 
Nancy Cartwright used to speak in such glowing terms about Isaiah Berlin. And so I kind of inherited their admiration for him. Yeah, me too, from Bernard Williams. Uh By the way, do you know the footnote story of Isaiah Berlin? I don't think so. That during World War II, he was called in by Roosevelt, Uh but he had mixed him up with Irving Berlin, who had written... I heard a version of this. I thought it was Winston Churchill, but... Okay, Okay. well... Somebody uh, like... Maybe it's not even true. (laughs) And anyway, I... I, Have you ever listened to him talk, by the way? At Berlin? Yes. I maybe have heard a recording. You absolutely should, because his talks are available on the internet. Oh. uh And he sounds like a Monty Python character. Oh, yeah. Because he talks so hilariously quickly. (laughs) Really? Okay. Maybe Um, I haven't. Yeah, it's it's really worth listening to. (laughs) He was a... He was a great intellectual historian. Yes. And I really loved his idea. Uh, Stuart Hampshire's way of putting a very Berlinian pluralistic view uh, about values is to say something like what you started with, which is that, you know, the unity in values is on the side of injustice and evil. Like, it's like there's universal agreement about what's bad. Mm-hmm. Starvation, imprisonment, torture, pain. No, there's no pluralism about that. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that as the sort of common core of human values agreement about what's evil and bad and but at the side of the good there's pluralism because there's lots Uh of goods and lots of incommensurable goods goods that you can't satisfy all at once so another berlinian contrast was between um spontaneity and trustworthiness oh interesting good things to have in a person but you you wouldn't want to you know put your life savings in the hands of somebody who was spontaneous <laughs> uh, and maybe reckless, uh, but you wouldn't want to spend all your time with a trustee, you know? Um, oh, great. That's a really good point. But I was just going to say my enthusiasm for Berlin kind of took a dive when I heard that he was in favor of the American war in Vietnam during the 60s. And then I was thinking, wait a minute. I had one of those moments, like, how could you think that given that you were so right about so many things. It may have something to do with squishy centrism that you were worrying about before, but I don't know that it has any deep roots in what he was... It could just be that he was such an anti-communist that... Um, That's what I was going to say. Yeah, if, like, yeah. My understanding is that he grew up in in, uh, in Vilnius. Uh-huh. That's why I like to say if, if um, Isaiah Berlin ever was a professional wrestler, he should have called himself the illness from Vilnius. Um, <laughs> but... So I think I think having fled Stalinist persecution, that I was probably right. the lens through which he looked at everything. I suppose that's right. Yep. So um, so justice could be freedom, it could be equality, I think it requires mercy, it can be forward-looking, it could be backward-looking, um, it's complex is what I think. Now, what I don't think is that it's impossible, because I think, and this is a little bit where we kick off right at the very beginning, you were, you were, I think, kind of wondering, isn't it a little hyperbolic just to say justice is impossible? It sounds like we're doomed and there will never be any justice. And that's obviously wrong. And I think it's reasonable to say one way to think about justice is like thinking about progress as improvement. Um, If you're going in the right direction. Yeah, I think of it as like health. Yeah, or like health. That's right. Health is healthier and less healthy. You can make a lot of claims about health. Like you could, the following things might be true. Even if you live a healthy lifestyle, you'll still die. 
Right. <laughs> We're um, all even dying. Even if you live a healthy time. lifestyle, you yeah. might die tomorrow because a bus drives over your head. Yeah. Um, it could be that the kind of drugs that make you less likely to have a heart attack will make you more likely to get cancer. Yep. And the kind of drugs that make you less likely to have cancer will make you more likely to have a heart attack. So those three things could be true. Yeah. And yet, yep. medicine is a good idea. <laughs> uh, health is a good thing. It's achievable. Yeah. You know. We're just staving off the inevitable. And actually, it's a very good analogy because um, it, not only are there competing factors to weigh in to figure out how to be healthy, but it's not even obvious what health is. Like, is aging a deviation from health? Well, that doesn't sound right because you can be very healthy all through your life even as you age. But you might think of aging as a kind of deterioration of some things, right? But is it a deterioration away from health? I mean, what? so our concept of health, I think, is actually pretty vague, like yeah, um I do think people are people have have conflicting intuitions about like is dwarfism a disease uh -huh. or is it just a variation is right. um are various mental disorders are they diseases or are yeah. they just variations and then you could also you know um Wayne Martin who writes about autonomy mm -hmm. he raises this interesting question of like so anorexia seems to be a mental disease mm -hmm. but Climbing mountains with your hands <laughs> is not a mental disease, yeah. even though it's also takes some years off your life. Yeah. And one of these days you're going to slip. So if somebody says, yeah. hey, what I really want to do is be really cool and, you know, impress the opposite sex by my daring. Yeah. And then you're like, well, that seems unhealthy. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, well. Yeah. You're more likely to die and like, yeah, but I'll have a fun life. Uh, maybe I'll yep. have more children than I would have otherwise. Yeah. So it's pretty puzzling. <laughs> Yet you don't want to say, oh, antibiotics aren't real. You know, yeah, they are. No, no. And they're a good thing <laughs> <that> we have. <laughs> One way to think about this is that the organism and life is extremely complex. And our ideas, especially just the ideas of sickness and health, are very simple minded. They're very mm -hmm. blunt and they're very coarse-grained, whereas the actual life of a person is very complicated, and these ideas are really oversimplifying. Well, they might be better thought of as paradigm examples. Yeah. So you're sort right. of like, what's justice? Right. Hey, see that situation where those people are all slaving away and uh, they never get anything? That's an example of injustice. Yeah, right. What's health? Well, you see that guy who's got, like, bugs living in his ears like that's not that's disease <laughs> well you you, know. but notice you picked out the injustice and the disease because those will be yes. easier to identify because those are well, i, I kind of yeah. think i kind of think like if if you never need to see the doctor that's good yeah <laughs> you know like and you don't need to worry about your health well think of this though actually i mean this uh -huh. just occurred to me Health is conceived differently now than, say, 500 or 1,000 years ago because we don't think you only go to a doctor when something's gone to terribly wrong. We think a healthy life means regular trips to the doctor. There's the checkup, right. which means regularly. Because you don't want to be one of those people like, oh, he seems so healthy and he dropped dead on the treadmill. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so our idea of health is sort of like constant monitoring of a whole bunch of things that we're supposed to be regulating throughout our lives. It's, this reminds me of Foucault's idea about disciplinary power structure our whole lives rather than monarchical power which just steps in and knocks you down when you cross a line right right but i think yeah so i think this is like justice our ideas about justice are almost bound to be in order to be practically useful real oversimplifications of what's going on when there's injustice uh, when there's uh, mm -hmm. violence and conflict and murder and betrayal and 
rehabilitation and you know psychopathy and you know all the all the drama in the Dostoevsky novel uh, and any of his novels and then there has to be a verdict and the fact that there has to be a verdict you know as practical necessity means there's going to be a brutality involved in a decision that gets made do you go to prison do you die uh -huh. what's the result there's a way in which that's always going to be here's I will say this I think there's always going to be a kind of violence in the search for justice because it's going to require a simplicity and a decisiveness which really is at war with the complexity of human life and crime and it requires afflicting the comfortable right um like people get annoyed at people they call social justice warriors yeah and i think it's just because we were having a good time only hiring white male comedy writers yeah we we were all putting shows on tv and we were all had a good time right and now you people are annoying us and making us think about something that we would be more comfortable not thinking about and i think i don't know if i necessarily call that brutal but it is waking people up who's who were kind of like focusing on other stuff you know and people tend to resist that. That's right. Yeah. And so, I mean, maybe it does. It employs at least the stinging rebuke of shame. Right. It does say you ought to be ashamed of yourself right. sitting around so smugly giving jobs to your friends yeah. when there's all these talented women who aren't getting jobs. And the older I get, it the, does require that. The older I get, the more I feel the pathos of the older generations who feel like they've been sort of discarded and set aside, and all their intuitions about what was right and appropriate and normal have kind of been discarded without really being given their due. And there's no way that every new generation can, you know, fully respect and. Uh, satisfy all the intuitions and values of the previous generation. There's just a sense in which one generation replaces another, and people are inevitably going to feel that they've been kind of superseded and left behind. But I, I would suggest, as your model for an older academic, Timothy Leary. Oh, I see. <laughs> which is, I think, I think you should just jump on board with the seething power of the younger generation. Uh -huh and be their mascot. I think that would be much more fun than be like, oh, harumph, harumph. Uh, why don't they realize how important it is to read Heraclitus? You yeah. know? I think to just jump in with both feet and be on the side of the rebels seems like it's a, an appealing way to have your cake and but eat it But isn't there something a little pathetic about that? About the sort of... Oh, yeah, sure. The, the old guy trying to be cool, <laughs> trying to be one of the kids. And, well, no. Trying and yeah, failing is yeah. pathetic. But <laughs> Timothy Leary, I think, tried and succeeded. I, thought, I think everybody thought he was cool. I thought a lot of people thought he was For a flake. while. Oh, his friends in the department thought he yeah, was a flake, yeah. but I think the kids in the street dropping <laughs> acid thought he was a pretty cool professor. <laughs> I see. Neither of those sounds like a very desirable thing. There's got to be a middle oh. path. Um, but uh, here's uh, yeah, another distinction I want to draw. I don't know if I can draw it very sharply, but I think there's a distinction between violence and brutality. Okay. Uh, but maybe I mean both. Maybe I mean both. I mean, yeah. I, I, okay, I'll go ahead with brutal. I mean, I think brutal is worse because it's dumb. But there's a kind of dumbness or simplicity in a sentence or a verdict, which has to be categorical, clear, decisive, way of putting an end to a series of events which are bound to be, in a lot of cases, murky, complicated uh, I'm not saying that all verdicts are uncertain or anything like that. Some some are just obvious, right? But um, there's just a point at which, yeah, even even in the most obviously horrendously guilty, monstrous crime, is this? Do you execute this person? Do you send them to prison for the rest of their life? I mean, there's always choices to be made in which there will be questions about was this the right appropriate verdict? And I think that that messiness is unavoidable. I think. Do you think people? who are more likely to imagine 
that they went to college with the judge are more comfortable with messiness. Oh. And people who think the system is not something where they have personal connections to the system are more likely to want clear rules. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, That's my worry. Yeah. Because sometimes I think about like, if if I feel a sense of comfort with the system, yeah. because right. like, I know those kind of people and probably I'm two degrees of separation from the judge who's actually going to be deciding my case, then I can feel comfortable yeah. with a nuance mm -hmm. with a system that's going to claim to uh, respond to nuance. Cause I'm like, yeah, I know Bob, he's probably going to respond to nuance. Uh -huh. But if I feel I'm from an oppressed group, then I'm like, I want there to be some clear rules Yeah, because I don't want them to get together behind closed doors and give me the shaft yet again. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, that's uh, a kind of a cynical um, I think take it can on this, vary but I from, do worry. I think it can vary from person to person and on both sides, right. on the side of the defendant and the side of the judge and so on. The, I, here's here's an ambivalence I have about, like, I could never be a judge. I don't think I would be a good judge. And I think the reason is because... You didn't have the Latin for the judging. You remember the Peter Cook? <laughs> that's right. I could have I I been a judge. The, I didn't have the Latin I, for the judging. I could have, yeah. If I weren't a minor, I could have been a judge. Right. Um, um, and the trouble with being a minor is when you're too old, sick, and stupid to do your job properly, you have to go. But the very opposite is the case with the judge. Anyway, go on. Right, exactly. And the <laughs> so conversations in the mind are so awfully boring conversations. Yeah. Right. Anyway, okay, yeah. So, um, so I think I would be haunted by the need for nuance. I think I would be uh, hard for me to be resolute judge maybe you'd be a good judge because i'm so terrified by the finality of a decision that i would but maybe that's exactly who we want to be to be the judge maybe we want them to be that way so tormented i think it would drive me nuts tormented judge my cousin carolyn i asked her um she's a judge oh. and i asked her as a judge do you find that in the rest of your life it's uncomfortable because you're too judgmental huh. um, Judgy. and she says we prefer we prefer to call it decisive <laughs> <laughs> right yeah exactly so here's what i'm a little terrified by but also kind of admire in judges is that in in spite of all the uncertainty they're able to like you know i guess i'm thinking of sentencing rather than the jury's verdict you know um i think there's a there's a good reason psychological reason we have juries precisely so that no one person has to feel the weight of all the responsibility for this decision, guilty or not guilty. That's a really brutal distinction, guilty or not guilty. It's all or nothing. You, there's no middle, you know, oftentimes. So, but when it comes to sentencing, so for example, when the judge or if the judge has to make some ruling, uh, what I'm a little in awe of is the ability to just say, this is my judgment, that's it. Uh -huh. End of story. It's the finality of it that I find kind of... Um, uh, yeah, a little. Well, they scary. could be. They, you could say that they they can come up for parole in three years. You could. I mean, that's right. I mean, yeah, you can say all kinds of things, and I'm sure there's all kinds of ways in which you wouldn't feel tormented by every single decision you made. But the weight of that, the burden of responsibility, and the the yeah, the simplicity of the verdict, it's scary. You know, here's why I think it's I'm probably not um, temperamentally uh, cut out for it is that scientific and academic or scholarly inquiry has a different structure, which is that open-ended, ongoing inquiry can keep going on forever. And you can keep changing your mind, and you can keep refining your view. And um, this is a theme in Hans Blumenberg's amazing book about the modern age, that 
there's this new thing in modern science, um, which is the idea of open-ended, unending inquiry, because lots of older, pre-modern forms of inquiry ended in something like a verdict. I see. And that, that ends the issue, that closes the issue, and that's done. And you have to do that in a lot of contexts. But the idea of modern science and inquiry in general just is that it's going to be an ongoing, never-ending sort of thing. And that also means you can always revise your view. But in your professional life, you must always have a decision where it's sort of like, like, like the closest example is um, Professor Mendrick sent a love note to a student. What are we going to do to... Um, so-and-so, we need a philosopher of mathematics. There's 10, 10 qualified applicants. Who do we pick to... Sure. Um, should we have a chair for Chinese philosophy or another these... one about philosophy of math? Yeah. Like, you need to make decisive decisions all the time in your People your need to make these that? decisions all the time, too. Yeah, and they're kind of agonizing. And at some point, mm -hmm. you do just feel the weight of the necessity of making a decision. You just have to sort of make the decision and then move on and not think about it anymore. So... Yeah, I, right. I'm glad my whole career isn't full of nothing but that, because that's... I, I, that's the least, that's your least, least favorite part of your job. Yeah, it's like a necessity. And giving grades or punishing plagiarism, I've had plagiarism cases where I just hated dealing with it because I thought, yeah, okay, this is what has to be done, but man, I wish I didn't have to sort of deal with this thing. Right, Whereas right. with like reading a book and figuring out uh, what I should think about something, I always I have this kind of nice sense that I've got the whole rest of my life to think about this and I don't have to have you ever assassinated or a thinker living or dead I mean metaphorically oh. <laughs> where you're just like Professor Matterhorn his work is worthless don't read it your life would be better spent taking a nice walk in the garden or reading somebody good Professor Matterhorn's work is absolutely worthless and and that could be Someone who's alive or somebody from like the 1500s, right? <laughs> when I was a young, uh, obnoxious or more obnoxious graduate student, I wrote yeah. several pretty nasty book reviews, which I, I don't, I'm not proud of in retrospect. I mm -hmm. really wish I hadn't done it. Um, and it was not a good feeling. I think it's, um, it's the nasty review is a, is a thing that I think should be avoided. Do you know any people who, who just feel like, I'm doing a service to the world because Professor Matterhorn's work is so worthless. I'm saving people <laughs> their life, wasting their time reading this charlatan or this fool. Well, yeah. I mean, there are cases where it's kind of like, uh, it, you know, there's a distinction between, um, there's a difference between punching down and punching up. Sure. So I think the punching up is sort of more like, you know, knocking somebody down a few pegs because everybody seems to love this, but it's junk. Right. That That's fine. I think that has to be done sometimes, and it's, I'm not averse to it. I don't think it should be not done at all. But I was picking on, you know, small things and trying to puff myself up by writing a nasty thing about somebody else's work. And it was petty. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, 20 lashes with a wet noodle, right? <laughs> you should go punish yourself after the podcast is over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not guilt-ridden by it. I just look back on it as like uh, that I, I was... Uh, that's in, that's that, healthy. That was an unnecessarily nasty sort of thing to be doing to promote my sure. own sense of um, accomplishment and superiority. And nobody read these reviews. They were completely obscure and who cares but i just feel like there's people in the profession alive now who i admire and people in the past who i admire who really view their life as like demolishing 
Oh, yeah. Idiots. I think it's gone <laughs> out know? of fashion. And they're sort of yeah. fun to read, actually. But yeah, I think in philosophy... At least you know what they, what they think. In philosophy, maybe academia more generally, I'm not sure about the humanities generally, mm-hmm. it's gone out of fashion. It used to be a sport. Oh, is that true? Interesting. Loved it. Yeah, I think there's a much kinder, gentler, sort of more cooperative culture oh, that's taken over, at least in philosophy, very much. Because philosophers have the worst reputation for that. Adversarial knockdown sniper kind of like um knife fight yeah i mean the ideal is that you can take somebody down with one single argument or counterexample that demolishes the whole thing and that's supposed to be satisfying it's the um i mean it's it's it still is according to your argument you couldn't make a chicken sandwich but obviously <laughs> you can bread and chicken makes a chicken sandwich exactly. okay i'm done i'm done with this fool <laughs> yeah. chicken sandwich is impossible <laughs> Um, yeah, so, right, so it's the, I think it's the, it's the roughness, coarseness of the verdict that makes Mm -hmm. justice a kind of perilous and scary kind of topic, um, and, and maybe the point of saying there's something impossible about justice is to say there can never be perfect justice, and not because it's just hard to attain, but because it's like perfect health. There just is no such thing. Or maybe it's because every situation is unique. Yeah. And justice requires viewing things as the same, but actually yeah. they aren't. Right, exactly. Rules have to be totally general. And um, yeah, exactly. And so they will never capture the nuance of the real events. Yeah. But hey, at home, nobody used this podcast as an excuse for treating people unjustly or not trying to make your life more just. Right. We're against injustice, um, Eric and I. Yeah. I no, no. We feel very strongly about that. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Peace out. Uh, come listen next week. See you later. Thanks for, I'm so glad we spent this time together. <laughs> Just to have a laugh or sing a song. Have to have a laugh and sing a song. Okay. Bye-bye. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's edited by me, Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and the cover art is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.